Thanks for leading that, Hunter, and uh, thank you for praying with us uh, for uh, persecuted Christians. And that map is going to stay up for the next month, and so uh, we'll kind of be praying for that throughout uh, the month of November. But uh, take these um, prayer cards with you and make sure that you are uh, praying for uh, persecuted Christians throughout the world uh, this month and, and, and always. Uh, all right, we're going to continue in our sermon series on the Imago Day, dust and glory, the Imago Day, and what it means to be human. Remember, Imago Dei is a Latin phrase for the doctrine of being made in the image of God. That we are created in the image of God. And so what does it mean, then, for us to be human as we are created in the image of God? Well, um, there is a philosophical movement called transhumanism. I don't know if anyone has heard of this uh, philosophical movement called transhumanism, uh, but it's a uh, philosophical movement that aims to free the human body and mind of their biological limitations, allowing humanity to transcend into a future unconstrained by death. Uh, so it, it sounds kind of like crazy, right? Like it's this idea of, uh, hey, we, we're, we're seeking immorality, or immortality, not immorality. Uh, <laughs> Slightly different. Also could be, also could be the same. Um, but see, seeking immortality and seeking to do so specifically through the use of technology and all sorts of other things. And so one of the main strategies that's being considered is this thing called mind uploading, which is uh, really uh, essentially living forever in some sort of metaverse by uploading uh, or even connecting your brain through uh, technology to computer sources and basically living through AI, computer-generated personality, but that's really you, but not you, but it's very confusing, but living in the cloud digitally forever. The question is, if that were true, if that were possible, would it be you? Would it be you if you were living in some sort of disembodied reality through the internet? And further, are limits itself bad and things that we must transcend, or are they good? Is the body that we have essential to what it means to be human? These feel very far-fetched, the questions, right? Except they're, they're, they're really not. There are very real conversations happening around these things. Uh, and I think in our lifetime, we're going to have to face some of these ethical questions, Uh, about how this is, and actually the way some of us already live our lives online in a sort of disembodied reality, we're not actually that far from it. But it does expose some things for us, this idea exposes some things for us. Do we as Christians have a good understanding of human limits and and whether it's essential or not that we are in a body? Do we have uh, good things Or do we believe that God did that for a purpose and it is good? Or is that something that we have to transcend somehow? Is uh, the bodily existence that we have something that we need to transcend in some way? The question that we are considering this morning in our sermon series is, what does it mean to be embodied? What does it mean to be in an embodied state? We've been looking at this, and and this is kind of the the whole thrust of this sermon series, that we are both dust and glory. We are made from the dust of the earth, and we are given the glory of being made in the image of God. But God very clearly created us as finite, embodied creatures. 
Genesis 2, 7, we looked at this early on. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. The Lord God formed him from the dust of the ground. This means that we are embodied souls. We are dust and glory, body and soul together. We live in, and that's what embodied means, right? That we are body and soul together. And that that's intentional. What it means to be body and soul together means that we are, uh, we're, we're physical beings, certainly, uh, physical creatures. We are also spiritual creatures. We have mental and emotional capacities, right? But all of those things are united into one person and not to be separated. All of those are united in what it means to be a person. In uh, Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he replies in saying the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Well, these parts of loving God, right? You've got heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of these are ways in which we exist as humans, but they are all together to be uh, a person is to love God with all of those things. We can't really separate those things too harshly into these categories that exist so that you could be a person that only exists in a mental way or in a spiritual or soul way, but all of these are to be together. He says, love the Lord your God with all your hearts. Uh, and, and heart, in our context, we often think of heart as emotions. Uh, but for uh, the, the writer of Scripture here, it's much more the will of a person, the, the, the willpower of a person, the center of making decisions, sort of the central uh, will of a person. Certainly it includes emotions for sure, but more centered on the willpower of a person. Includes your soul, mind, and strength. But all of this is uh, you are commanded to love the Lord your God with all of those things. Meaning all of them are to be a part of who you are as a person. God made you to experience life in this embodied way. God made you with a body. You are physical. You exist not just in some sort of metaphysical way in the universe, but you exist in a particular place and time as a finite creature, right? You have limits. You, have, uh, you live only in this time period and not in another time period. You have a body that only does what a human body can do. And that, I'm going to argue for us this morning as we walk through these things, is the intentional design of the Lord and is ultimately good. That we are to live in this embodied way. Now, the reason it's difficult for us to experience some of these things is because, right, we talked about the fall. We talked about what, uh, last week we talked about what it is uh, that humans were created in the image of God and then fallen and what is it, how does the fall affect our existence in the world, right? That it has created brokenness throughout the world and in our own lives. And so the reason that we struggle with an embodied existence is because the fall has sort of jacked with everything. 
Some of us experience quite a bit of problems with being embodied. There's mental health issues with being embodied. There's physical health issues with being embodied. Emotional and spiritual health issues, all of those things come with what it means to be embodied in a fallen world. We experience physical pain, brokenness. We experience mental fatigue and mental health issues and brokenness. Uh, And we experience emotional uh, concern as well. Some of these challenges that we experience are actually a combo of all of these things, right? Uh, It could be some chemical imbalances that we're experiencing that affect our mental health. And it could be some ways in which we are choosing to live our lives that affect our mental health. And it could be the combo of those two. It's kind of all convoluted together, right? We can't so easily divide mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical because all of them interact with one another. And that's our existence here, right? That we have, we experience challenges related to what it means to live in an embodied way in this world. And we can see this as uh, one of the effects of the fall that we talked about last week was uh, the experience of shame. And as uh, we as humans experience shame, actually neuroscientists have looked at how the brain responds to interactions of shame. And the brain is doing things that we're experiencing shame in. And the, the brain is misfiring in ways that we feel that existence in real shame. Right? The body and the brain and our soul are all functioning together or dysfunctioning together to create an experience that we are having. We can see this on a genetic level, right? That there is genetic ways in which we are broken that play out over the course of our lives, uh, but they are what it means to live embodied in a fallen world. And so it's not actually all that far-fetched for philosophers to say, how do we transcend those limitations and painful experiences? What does it mean for us to transcend those things? How do we get around those things? We are complicated, embodied creatures. So there's two extremes that we could go to when it comes to answering those questions of what it means to be a complicated, embodied creature. One is we could say, you are only flesh. You're only a body. There's re- the spiritual realities are not important at all. You exist as a body, so just live as a body. Don't worry about spiritual things, uh, or at least don't allow them to be chief in your life. You could be a spiritual person or not a very spiritual person, but do that in private. Don't let that affect who you are and how you function and interact in the culture. You are just a body. Just live like a body. Ignore any other things. Which is really how our culture, at least in some ways, treats us. At least it's how they advertise to us, to buy things. They appeal to our senses. They appeal to uh, who we are as uh, bodies and say, whatever you feel or want, or just go do it. And actually, we'll make some money while you go do it too, right? Like, we're going to appeal to those things in order to do that. And when you die, well, nothing happens because you're just a body. You're just dust. So to dust, you return. There's the other extreme of this is to say that only the spiritual matters and that actually the body is evil. 
And this is an ancient heresy that the church faced called Gnosticism. Uh, and it sort of uh, shows up all, actually all over the place, even still today, in various ways. But it is this idea that the spiritual is good and the body is bad. And so, you need to be released from the prison that is the body. Which actually right, informs some of what transhumanism would actually argue is that the body itself is the problem. And if we could just get, instead of Gnosticism saying the soul or the spirit released, if we could just get the mind released from the body and uploaded to the internet without the limitations of the body dying, we could be in good shape, right? It's very similar to Gnosticism. Uh, This typically leads to either a severe discipline of the body. My body is broken. It's the problem. I need to discipline my body in such a way so that I can uh, do well in the world, right? And so even today, uh, Stoicism is a a rising movement among lots of people, uh, a great discipline of the body to put it in its place so that I can actually function uh, in a reasonable way. Or it can actually lead back to the exact same extreme we talked about before. If the spirit is good and the body is evil, well, then it doesn't matter what I do with my body. I can do whatever I want with it because it doesn't matter. It doesn't ultimately matter. God only cares or uh, I only care about the spiritual side of my life. This is actually sometimes the way Christians fall into some subtle forms of Gnosticism, is that we believe God only really cares about my spiritual health, and he cares less about what I do with my body. Therefore, as long as I'm doing these spiritual things, I can hide from God whatever I do with my body. Or the fact that I indulge in things with my body that God tells me not to, I don't see the disconnect always because I think the body is bad. And the spirit is good. Or at least I live like I think the body is bad and the spirit is good. But what I want to say to you today is that from the scriptures, even from that very first uh, creation account, is that our embodied states, us being both dust and glory together, this embodied state is what God planned and designed us for. And it's good. God from creation said, I am going to create human beings in my image and they will have these bodies. I don't know why he does what he does sometimes. But this is what he chose. This is what he chose. Because, and living in uh, an embodied state because of the fall, we should all acknowledge is actually pretty hard. There's a lot of brokenness surrounding us. And because of the fall, we have confused some fundamental categories of what it means to function in the world as an embodied person and what we should know how to actually respond to what we encounter. And so, I want to offer for us this morning what we need to live in an embodied state to glorify God is we need clarity and we need Christ. We need clarity and we need Christ. So we need clarity on a few different categories of what it means to be embodied. We need clarity on the difference between being finite, which I'll define here in a second, right? Being finite, what is sin, and what is the brokenness of the world around us. Okay, those three sort of categories of how we interact as embodied creatures. What interaction I have or what thing that happens in my life is a result of me being a finite creature 
What's a result of my own sin? And what's a result of the brokenness surrounding me? And if we could have clarity on those things, we actually might be able to interact with those things in the appropriate way, rather than applying the tools for one to all of them. So hopefully this will make a little bit more sense as we walk through this. But the first is finite. Finitude is uh, this idea that you are not infinite. You're not God. You're not infinite. You have a limited nature or existence. That's how Merriam-Webster defines finite. Having a limited or, uh, nature or existence. Uh, in his book, uh, You're Only Human, Kelly Capick says it this way, Good created human limits. All creatures are limited by space, time, and power, and our knowledge, energy, and perspective also have always been limited. So he defines finite. That we are limited creatures. Okay? Now, that's what it means to be finite. Now, sin, we maybe have a little bit more. If you have been in the church for a while, you may have a little bit more categories for understanding what sin is. But the Westminster Shorter Catechism talks about sin as any lack of conformity to God's law or any breaking of God's law. So, You've probably heard me say this here before, but sin is not doing anything God has told us to do in thought, word, and deed, or doing anything God told us not to do in thought, word, and deed. And those are really clear. Like God's word is clear on what is sin and what is not sin. He's very clear on these things, and so we have clarity on what God has told us not to do and what God has told us to do. All right? So that's sin. Brokenness, we talked about the difference between sin and brokenness a little bit last week when we were talking about the fall. But these are the effects of the curses that God put out because of Adam and Eve's sin and the fall. These, these effects to uh, the fall that the world experiences. So these would include things like natural disasters, cancer, illnesses, covid I don't think COVID was a result of people's specific sin, but was a result of the brokenness of the world. Like, things are jacked up. They're not the way they're supposed to be. Anxiety. Rising up within me, not because of anything I've done, but I just feel it all the time. Physical pain that it isn't because of some sin I committed, but just I just feel it all the time. Pain in childbirth, we talked about that a little bit last week. Difficulty of work. The reality is, living in this place and trying to glorify God is hard work. It causes you to sweat. It causes you to endure difficult and painful things. It can cause a level of anxiety and even depression that is not something I did or worked up, right? So much of our mental health challenges... Uh, exists because sometimes we confuse what is brokenness of, around me and brokenness caused by me. And sometimes we blame ourselves for things that are actually just the brokenness around me or the brokenness in me. Like my body's broken and I have chemical imbalances and I need help to figure those things out. So that's brokenness more generally. Now, here's why we need clarity on this, okay? Because sometimes we take the wrong tool to solve what we experience in this. So I'm going to give you a few examples to hopefully showcase what this is. 
Okay, so when it comes to our interaction with time and our productivity and our work, there is very real sin related to this. You could be totally lazy, like not engaging at all, and not because of depression, but because of like actual laziness. Like actual laziness is a thing, right? And sinful. Or you could overwork, also a sin. I could overwork, and that could be sinful. It could be because I'm not trusting God and because I'm trying to earn more than I need to, because I'm trying to just do more than I have the capacity for, whatever it is, right? That could be sin. But when it comes to time and productivity, there is also brokenness. It's difficult. Like, have you guys found that, like, managing your time in this chaotic world is difficult? Or is that just me? Do I only experience that brokenness, right? Like, it's difficult to be able to manage all of those pieces. We should acknowledge that it's difficult to do so because the world is broken. Like, it's actually really hard to do. We actually feel very real anxiety and stress that's not related to because I'm lazy and sinful, but just because we live in a broken world and the fall has jacked with everything. And then there's finitude. And this might be the thing we struggle with the most. There are not enough hours in the day. You cannot manufacture an extra hour except for today. (laughs) The timing of this is so great, right? This is the only day that you can go 2 a.m. Nope, we're going back to 1 a.m., right? But how many of us wish you could do that every day? Because we don't want to be finite. We don't want to have limits. We want to do more. There are more experiences to be had. There is more work to be done. There is more play to have. There's more sleep to have. Whatever it is that you want, you don't get enough of it. Because you're finite. God made you have to sleep like a third of your life. He is saying something very clear. You are not God. You're not infinite. You are finite. I will make you run out of energy every day, and you got to recharge. I will make you do that. You need sleep. There's not enough hours in the day. You are a social creature that needs play. You cannot live your life without any experiences of friendship and joy and recreation and actually be healthy. Like, that's not going to work. You're made to play, to enjoy one another, to experience recreation and fun. We're not just productive things that are just to do this thing, just like this, right? Like, that's not how God made us. Here's why this is important. Sometimes we experience bumping up against our limits, and we think it's because we're sinful. We think it's because we're sinful when actually it's just a limit that God has put on you. Not something that you need to repent of, something you need to embrace. This is true for time and productivity. Let me give you two more examples. This one is a little bit more difficult. Sexuality. When it comes to sexuality, there is very real sin. Any sexual activity in thought, word, or deed outside of a marriage between one man and one woman is sin. 
That's clear teaching of Scripture, start to finish, right? So that is sin, something to be repented of. However, there's also brokenness when it comes to our sexuality. Some of us experience desires that are misaligned, whether that's with, towards the same sex or towards someone that isn't your spouse or towards, like, all of these different things. Those are misaligned desires. You don't create desires. They just come up from within you. What you do with desires is really important. But it's not something that you've manufactured and chosen and decided, hey, this is what I'm going to do. No, it's just something that rises up within you, right? It's an experience of the brokenness of the world around us. All of us have experienced some sexual brokenness, misaligned desires and temptations that is around us. And then there's finitude when it comes to sexual desire. You are created by God with sexual desire. It's part of your finitude. You have longings that actually can't really be fully fulfilled. You long for infinite experiences, and you get finite experiences. You're actually never fully satisfied. Like, those realities are you bumping up against your finitude because God has made you with that experience to call out something in you, a desire for some greater experience that you can't have in this place. Something of the intimacy that we get with Jesus. So, we have finitude, we have brokenness, and we have sin. Here's another example. Parenting. Parenting, there is sin when it comes to parenting. There's sin when it comes to being parented, too. Uh, but, but I'm going to focus on parenting currently. Uh, you could provoke your children to anger. You could be overbearing. I mean, there's real abuse that exists in parenting. That's sinful. Or you could be on the other end of this and have no instruction or discipline whatsoever and just let your kids do whatever they want. That would be sinful when it comes to parenting. And then there's brokenness when it comes to parenting. Anyone here experience parenting being hard? Or is it pretty easy? Right? Any, anyone sign up saying, this is the easiest thing I've ever done? Nope, I didn't think so. <laughs> Right? It's hard. It's frustrating. You feel like you're doing the right thing all the time, and then it still doesn't work. It's just hard and frustrating. There's brokenness surrounding this. Our relationship with our kids experiences the brokenness of the fall. Right? It's why one of the commandments is honor your father and mother. Right? Because there is very real sin and brokenness that experiences that. So there's sin that we've got to repent of, but then there's also just the brokenness of life is hard. And you're juggling different things. You're juggling your own uh, wants and desires and experiences and your kids' wants and desires and experiences. That's hard to manage. That's difficult. There's a lot of brokenness. And then there's finitude. Human beings take a long time to grow. Sometimes we as parents struggle not because of the sin of our children or because of the brokenness of the world, but just because they are slow growers. But that's what God did. Sometimes we are actually just bumping up against the limits of having embodied creatures in our home that take a long time to grow. Sometimes we interpret things as brokenness or sin when it's really just human development. Like, that's just part of human development and growing. And sometimes we broke up, uh, 
uh, bump up against this. Here's why this is important. We need the right solution. When it comes to sin, we repent. We repent. When it comes to brokenness, we can lament. And when it comes to finitude, we can be content. Shout out to Hunter for finding me a rhyming word. (laughs) We can repent, we can lament, and we can be content. Some of the real challenges that we have in entering into conversations about what it means to be human and understanding the image of God in humans, and particularly the challenges surrounding walking into very real ethical concerns and conversations that our culture is having, is because we as Christians can often approach every problem as a sin problem, and then therefore every problem or every solution is to repent. So we sound kind of judgy because we are kind of judgy. Because we say every problem is sin and every solution therefore is to repent. But that might not be the case. That might not be the case. We need clarity on these things because we have, the Bible gives us more tools than simply repentance and sin as a category to think about human existence. The Bible gives us more tools than that, right? You know, I Maybe somebody has told you you can fix anything with a hammer and duct tape and WD-40. But most of the time, we as Christians come only with the hammer. Like every problem is sin, and so we're going to hit everything with the hammer of repentance. That's why a lot of people don't want to listen to us when we talk about ethical issues about what it means to be human. Because we're not entering into the nuance and complication of what it means to be a fallen, embodied creature. We need to think more carefully about this. And the Bible gives us ways to think more carefully about this. Now, repentance is an actual tool, right? There is real sin, right? We can't say, okay, well, repentance isn't the only tool and then never actually use it because it actually does exist, right? There is real sin that we really have to repent of. And repenting is just turning from our sin, asking for forgiveness and receiving forgiveness from God. Repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus to, to forgive us of our sins. But we also can use the tool of lament. We can acknowledge the very real pain and brokenness and move toward God with that emotion and complaint. Right? Lament is simply the same as complaining, except we're complaining to God instead of about God. It's actually taking the complaints that we experience as broken, fallen humans and turning them to God and saying, God, why do I feel this way? Why do I experience this desire? Why do I have this anxiety? Why do I experience this pain and brokenness around me? Read Lamentations or the psalmist. They are very real and honest before God about their complaint, their real existence. We, when we bump up against the brokenness of the world around us, can lament. When we encounter the brokenness of the fall in other people, we can lament with them. We can do that. And then we can be content. This actually might be the hardest one for us as believers. Is we can actually try and learn to be content with our limits. Some of the shame and brokenness that we feel is because we think, I can't do that thing because there's something wrong with me. It's got to be some sort of sin in me. Or my mental health is struggling. It's got to be because I'm sinning in some way. I, I wasn't praying enough. I wasn't doing this thing enough. 
Actually, it might just be the brokenness of the world around, around you. You might need to see a doctor or a counselor to help you walk through those things. You might need some medication to help you with those things. I'm not saying that there might not be spiritual components to that and sin related to that. Absolutely, there can be, but it doesn't always need to be that way. And some of it is because you're just a finite creature and you need sleep. Sometimes the most godly thing for you in avoiding sin is eating a meal or taking a nap. Because you're finite. And God made you that way. And if you don't recharge, you get hangry. And sin. So what you don't need in that moment is to like get your Bible out and have a quiet time. You need to eat a meal and take a nap. God made you as an embodied creature and you have limits. And we bump up against those limits all the time. And where we experience as Christians a lot of shame is because we categorize that as sinful. And actually, not only do you have limits, your limits might be different than someone else's limits. God's made you a unique person that's totally different from any other person on the planet, meaning God probably made you in an embodied way with unique limits that no other person has. And instead of feeling shame about that, We need to embrace that and be content that God made me with limits that I need to honor because he did it, not me. It's not some specific sin that I can point to that I need to repent of. If I don't have a specific place where I can find and say, well, no, like God's pretty clear on this, you got to repent, then maybe I need to explore these other tools of maybe I just need to lament before God and experience healing. And maybe I just need to be content with I can't do everything that I want to do. Now, most of this part of the sermon, I'm really talking about myself. Um, I really struggle with limits. I do not do well with being finite. I don't like being finite. I want to try more things. I want to do more things. I want to start more projects. I don't really want to finish projects, but I want to start more projects. Like, come on, I want to do more things. I need to know that God made me with limits. And when we cross those limits, we experience the reality of being fallen, broken world, and the pain of that. But also, we experience the reality that God made you with limits, which we'll talk about this when we get here in this sermon series to the new heavens and new earth. There's no indication that those limits are going away. The brokenness is going away you're still going to be a finite creature. We're still going to be finite creatures because God made us that way in the garden. He delights in having embodied creatures made in His image who will always be finite. So we need this kind of clarity so we know what to do. But we also need more than just clarity. We need Christ. Christ answers both our, all three, our finitude, our, broken, or our sin and our brokenness in three specific ways. The first is the incarnation. In the incarnation, God affirms our finitude. John 1, 14. So the Word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. 
For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, but the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We'll talk about the death in a moment, but this is, guys, this is huge. The incarnation is not just something that we meditate on right around Christmas. This is massive. God affirms that he intended to create you with flesh and blood as an embodied person, a finite person, when God himself, in the person of his son, the second person in the Trinity, took on flesh forever. He took on flesh forever. He affirms that he made your body good. Jesus, without sin, Jesus never sinned, had a body. Meaning having a body is not bad, but good. Jesus had finite limits in his humanity. Right? He grew. He slept. He ate. He hung out with friends. He did all of those things because he was a finite human being. This affirms that God knew what he was doing when he made you as a finite human being. He affirms that it's okay for you to be finite, for you to have limits. That God doesn't expect you to do the work of God, but simply the work of a person. And not the work of two people, but one. God only expects you to be a person, not to be God. Uh, To quote Capic again. He says, the doctrine that the word became flesh means that God himself affirms our flesh as good. And that affirmation liberates us from apologizing for our creaturely limitations. If we believe that Jesus, who was free from all sin, was fully human, then this means that he considered creaturely restrictions to be a part of his good creation and not evil at all. It means that we must not apologize for what the Son of God freely embraces. We must not apologize for our creaturely limits. This book, uh, You're Only Human, I highly recommend it. It has been really challenging and good for me um, as I've been walking through this. We have limits and that's okay. Jesus affirms that we have limits. Well, not only that, but Jesus deals with our sin in an embodied way on the cross. Romans 8, 3 And four, say this, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. Jesus came in an embodied way to deal with our sin. Right? If you actually begin to start looking for it, the reality is the fullness of the scriptures talk a lot about what it means for us to be embodied. Jesus came to die on a cross in a very real physical way. Meaning our sin is not dealt with merely in spiritual ways. Right? Have you ever thought about this? Like why God couldn't just say, well, they sinned. Well, let's just cancel that out. Just cancel the ledger. They have debt against me. We'll just cancel it out. Just delete it. He did, but he did so by coming in a body to suffer and die on a cross in your place. 
to showcase to you that your sin is dealt with in an embodied way, the same way in which you actually do sin, right? He dealt with it in that same way, in an embodied existence, becoming flesh and blood, dying on a cross, paying for sin with his body being broken in your place, dealing with your sin in an embodied way. Finally, Jesus deals with our brokenness in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll jump around to a couple of places here in 1 Corinthians 15, but 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, bodily, right? This is where Paul is like, if Jesus didn't walk out of the tomb, this whole thing that we're doing is a sham. Like, this is how important the body is to Christianity, It's not just spiritual. You can't just say like, no, we're going to be really good people and the teaching of Jesus lives on. No, if Jesus didn't come physically, then you have no affirmation that God cares about your body. If Jesus didn't die physically on a cross, then you cannot know that the sin that you commit with your body is going to be forgiven by God. And if Jesus didn't walk physically out of the tomb, we have zero hope in the future. The Bible is super clear on this. Jesus physically came back to life after being dead and walked out of the tomb. And without it, this whole thing is a sham. You guys should walk walk out. This whole thing is dumb. We got zero hope. We're just going to end up like dust like everybody else. But Jesus really did walk out of the tomb. He really did come back to life. And so we really do have hope for the brokenness that we experience. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised first as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. When Jesus returns, we will all be raised back to life. We're going to talk about this in a, when we get to the New Heavens, New Earth sermon, but our common conceptions of heaven are, are not often biblical because we think of heaven as this sort of disembodied state where we float around like angels. No, when Jesus returns for the New Heavens, New Earth, you will be physical. Body and soul reunited in an embodied state because that's the state that God wants us in. State of death is uh, an aberration to that. That's the separation of body and soul is not good. Paul talks about this in another place, but, but it's the union of body and soul together in an embodied way that Jesus is after. All right, skipping down to verse uh, 42. It, It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. The scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. We'll talk about spiritual and natural here in just a second. Let me read the rest of the passage. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. 
Whoops. Is that where I was supposed to end? I don't think so. But that's where I ended. All right. <laughs> that's where it is. Let me keep reading here. Uh, where did we end? 47. Yep. Uh, Adam, the first man, was from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. Okay, now you might be thinking, wait a second, didn't he just say we would have physical bodies? But Paul makes it sound like we're going to have spiritual bodies. What is he talking about? He says, just like we, right now, we're like the earthly man, we'll be like the heavenly man. Well, what was Christ like? What did he do when he rose from the dead? He ate fish. He showed up with a body. He was with his friends. He slept. Right? He was there for many days, so I assume he slept. Right? He, he was there. He was in a physical body. We will be like that. Paul goes on to say, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to life forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God he gave us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. You will still have a body. A body that will never die. A body that will never decay. A body that will never break. A body that will never experience brokenness and, and uh, feeling one way and experiencing something a different way. A body that won't have any chemical imbalances. A body that will not experience anxiety and depression. A body that will not experience pain. And a body that will never die. That sounds good, doesn't it? Jesus affirms that he made you embodied on purpose in his incarnation. On the cross, he affirms that he will pay for your sin bodily so that you can be justified before God. And in the resurrection, he says, one day, I will end all of your brokenness and pain. Romans 8, I think this one's on here. Let's, let's hope. The whole thing. Romans 8, 18 through 25 says this, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared with what he will with, to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against his will, its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and from suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. 
We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. If you experience this longing for a new existence, for a new body with no pain or sorrow, for no death or brokenness, you're longing just like the earth is longing. And Jesus says, I'll give it to you. Come to me. I will give it to you because I love you. He answers our sin. He answers our brokenness. And he also affirms that we are finite embodied creatures who can trust that God made us that way on purpose. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you now admitting that we do groan for you to show up. We long for you to come and to make us new. We need you. We need you to come and to make us new. And so, Jesus, would you come quickly? Would you come and redeem us? Would you make all things new? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.